A lot of folks um, spend so much time working in their business that they don't take the time uh, to appropriately work on their business. Uh, working on your business is making plans, setting goals, coming up with initiatives that you want to implement, and kind of looking at your, your business from 40,000 feet. And the best time to do that really is on the weekend. So I spend a lot of time on the weekend. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint podcast. Super excited for today's guest. I have Bob Knackle, legendary broker from New York City here today. Welcome, Bob. Hey, Drew. Great to be with you today. So as I mentioned, Bob's a commercial real estate broker who sells buildings in New York City. Uh, he also told me that on uh, July 16th of this year, he's going to be starting his 40th year in brokerage. So he's been uh, doing brokerage just like about a year or two longer than I've been alive. So <laughs> I'm sure he's learned a thing or two um, in that time. And, uh, and also for 26 years, he owned and ran Massey Knackle Realty, which he sold to Cushman and Wakefield for a, uh, an astounding sum of money. So I'll let him get into that if he wants to talk about the amount. But he sold that back in 2014 and um, also in terms of just kind of the the volume of business he's done it's just like i said legendary over 21 billion dollars of deals um probably by now that might be an old number but we uh might be a few more billion on there and over 2000 buildings in new york city so i guess with that out of the way uh maybe bob why don't you just tell us kind of either about growing up or how you got started in real estate just kind of start at the beginning wherever it makes sense to kind of jump into your story Sure, Drew. Well, I, uh, I grew up in a small town in northern New Jersey called Maywood. Um, so small that we didn't have our own high school. So uh, went to Hackensack High School, uh, very active in sports as a kid growing up. Um, you know, played baseball. I was a pitcher, kept track of my statistics uh, very, very uh, meticulously uh, and collected baseball cards. So I always loved looking at the stats on the back. And I think that's where my affinity for statistics came in. Um, you know, I've been tracking everything happening in the real estate market since I got into the business, uh, tracking my own stats, market stats, things like that. But I'm very statistically oriented. And I think it was because of, uh, the attraction to baseball as a kid growing up, but, uh, you know, grew up small town, um, went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, like all Wharton kids, my freshman year wanted to be a, a Wall Street guy. Um, during spring break, I drove around um, Bergen County, uh, dropping my resume off at every commercial bank and investment bank I saw. Uh, I was coming out of a Payne Weber office, and across the hall, I saw Coldwell Banker. I went into the place thinking it was a bank. Uh, one thing led to another. They were the only ones hiring for the summer. I got my summer job there. I loved it. Um, went back my next two summers and then started with CB when I got out of school in 1984. So, yeah, July 16th, 1984 was my first day on the job. And uh, uh, in, uh, in six days will be my, uh, the beginning of my 40th year in this business, which is really hard to believe because in, in some ways it feels like I've been in it my whole life in other ways it feels like uh, you know it hasn't been quite that long so uh, but it's uh, been a, a long road and a great run and I, I fortunately I, I still love the business as much today as I did when I started. And at what point uh, in this uh, applying for the job did do you realize Coldwell Banker was a real estate company when did that uh, well yeah. again it was 1981 I wanted to there was no internet so I wanted to look uh, like I knew something about the bank when I went on the interview so the the they 
They had actually called me the day that I dropped the resume off and we set up an appointment for the next day, an interview. Uh, I went to the library that morning to look up this bank and uh, saw it was a real estate company and uh, you know almost didn't go on the interview, but they were the only ones hiring college kids for the summer. So I took the job. Um, it was a great office. Uh, a lot of uh, young, hardworking people looked like they were having fun, making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was an environment that I really enjoyed. A lot of great people there. And, um, you know, as I said, went back my next couple of summers and then, you know, started my career after school was over. And then how did how did your career start? I mean, you've had a lot of success. So then I think probably where you degraded it right away or kind of how did that how did that go? No, I well, I, you, you don't really know how you're going to do. I knew that I really liked the business a lot. Uh, and I knew I was going to work hard at it. I, I uh, tended to uh, to immerse myself in things um, when I, I set out to do something. And I, I think for the first seven or eight months, uh, I worked seven days a week. And, you know, back in, in the mid 80s, working working meant being in the office. If you weren't in the office, you weren't working because we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any of those things. So if you if you wanted to work, you had to be in the office. So that meant, uh, you know, driving into the city on Saturdays and Sundays and things like that. But, uh, you know, I knew that I really, really um, loved the business. Um, the first deal we closed was in March of 85. So it was about nine months uh, after I had started. And that was a great feeling to get one under the belt. But, um, you know, it was a lot of uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of blocking and tackling and um, you know, I, I uh, had some good uh, fundamentals at the beginning, but you know, didn't realize that the market was going to be, um, or that my my um, relative level of success in the business was going to be what it was uh, until many many years later. And at what point were so this working on the weekends? That how long did that continue for? Uh, well, it's it's still going. <laughs> I still <laughs> work on the weekends. I think you know, as a broker. Uh, we have two main assets. We have our um, our knowledge and our time. Uh, and you're always trying to increase your knowledge, learn more things. I still learn things every day. Um, but you have to use your time as effectively as possible. And I think a lot of folks um, spend so much time working in their business that they don't take the time uh, to appropriately work on their business. Uh, working on your business is making plans, setting goals, coming up with initiatives that you want to implement and kind of looking at your your business from 40,000 feet. And the best time to do that really is on the weekend. So I spend a lot of time on the weekend, you know, uh, debriefing on what happened the week before, planning for the week to come. Um, you know, once once Monday morning comes at, at nine o'clock, uh, kind of the week is on cruise control. Um, and you're caught up in what we call the whirlwind. You know, I work with uh, with a broker coach, Rod Santamassimo, and, and Rod refers to it as the, the, the deal whirlwind. You're so busy reacting and trying to make calls and trying to do the things you need to do to, to move your deals along. There's really no time to think clearly and, and try to, to get things done. So the, the thoughtful part of the process is, is done on the weekends, times when you actually can, can focus. Yeah, that I'm not surprised to hear that. That's been a common thing that I've heard just from other successful people I know and people I've had on the podcast. And I've I've been doing real estate for uh, maybe 17 or 18 years at this point. I didn't don't have the exact day written down, um, but we but I've been I've been doing the same thing where it's right. If you are, need to lead, read, a let's say, a long contract uh, as a buyer or maybe an operating agreement for an LLC, we have. Yeah, it's hard to do that when everything in your computer is blinking or every, you know, you're in the middle of the day. Whereas, yeah, if you read that uh, like at night, let's say, or early in the morning before people get in or on the weekends. And usually for me, I'm thinking best on the weekends, too, because it's just then you're fresh versus you read at the end of the day. So I'm not I'm not surprised to hear that. I'm still still in that. Um, but I, I actually I guess I'm surprised to hear that it's still going. I guess it's some. uh so that's that's interesting, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I you know, Drew, I feel so lucky because as I I say, if you follow me on social media, I, I I chirp this every now and then is that you know, real estate for me is not only a career, but it's also my hobby. 
Um, you know, when I'm not working, I, uh, I'm either working out or spending time with my, uh, my wife and my daughter. Um, but if they were to go on a girl's trip for the weekend, I would probably work all week weekend. Uh, you know, I just really, really enjoy it. And, uh, I feel very blessed that I, I stumbled into a business, uh, that I truly love as much as I do. Yeah, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't doubt that. So that's, uh, no, that's, that's interesting. I've, and I've done the same thing where, yeah, if my, uh, if I don't have my son and I'm, I'm, or my, and my girlfriend's going on girls, I'm doing the same thing where it's, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I'm not, not going out on the lake. I'm kind of trying to catch up on work. So I, I hear that. So I guess kind of as you built, you know, um, you know, Massey Knackle and your, your own firm, what did you, you, you had hired, I'm sure a lot of brokers, um, what did you, was there anything that you kind of saw in other brokers, um, that you could kind of tell like they have it early on or what, uh, anything kind of on that or just kind of everybody's different. What's the thought? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's really tough to look at a characteristic or a couple of characteristics and, and feel like, oh, that, that person has it because you never know how things are going to go. I think generally, and just to give kind of an overview, uh, for those that are not familiar with Massey-Knackle, it, it started uh, November 15th of 88. Uh, it was Paul Massey and I uh, sitting in a room. Uh, and we, uh, a week later, we had an assistant start. She was our secretary. Uh, there was the three of us, and we grew that firm to 250 people in four offices in New York. Um, for the last 16 years uh, of the firm, we... Uh, we sold more buildings than any other firm by a factor of three. Uh, so we had a very, very uh, dominant market share in uh, the building sales world uh, in New York. And uh, as you said, we, we've uh, we hired you know, hundreds of brokers over the years. Um, and I think the characteristics that we looked at were number one, uh, did, did that candidate have, um, have a passion for the business? Uh, because we think passion is really important. Passion is something that gets you through tough times. And no matter how good you are, you're always going to have tough times in the business world. So um, that passion enables you to work hard enough to push through those tough times. Uh, we've looked for uh, competitiveness. Uh, real estate brokerage is a very, very competitive business. So we loved people who um, were athletes. Um, and competed and particularly who played team sports because real estate brokerage is also a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Um, so that was a good characteristic and looking for signs of excellence in someone's background, whether it was editor of the school newspaper or captain of the debating team or, or something that, that evidenced, um, you know, uh, excellence in your background. And again, all of these things increase the probability of a successful broker, but certainly didn't guarantee it. Um, you know, one year early on, we hired a guy who was the valedictorian at Harvard uh, and thought for sure he was going to be great. And nine months later, he flamed out. He was a terrible salesman. And, uh, you know, you, you just you never know. So I think you, you look for these characteristics. You try to increase the probability as much as you can. Um, and, uh, you know, likability is also a, a very, very important trait. Uh, we would tell our HR people, look, you can meet with a candidate and you could feel like, you know, on paper, they have everything you possibly could want. But we said, after you interview them, if you don't feel like you want to go out and have lunch with them or go have a beer with them, you can't offer them a job. Uh, and I think that served us really well because we had a, a great bunch of people um, you know, we had, uh, we had guys getting uh, a summer house together in the Hamptons and people would go on vacation together. And, uh, one of our folks would get married and there'd be 50 people from the company there. Uh, so that it created an environment that was a, uh, had a, a very, very good culture. And I, yeah, think and that I, was and I, it's, it's uh, I've, I've seen the same thing where when I, cause you know, I'm a principal and I, I get the, the calls from the brokers and it's. You know, when you think about who you want to call back, like who you're interested in talking to or maybe getting uh, a bite to eat with, like a lot of times it's like, yeah, who's the, the most enjoyable to talk to, you know, and where like that comes down to like ability, you know, and then ob obviously the, you need to work hard and have other traits like you're talking about. But a lot of t it's it's kind of uh, 
it's interesting in a way like that it sometimes comes down to something as simple as that especially nowadays where there's more data out there and this is um you know where it, it comes down to some of these intangibles and yeah it's hard to probably hard to screen that on the first interview so then it's, it's people might you know have surprised you over the years who ends up being the the one that's you know persistent enough to get the phone call back or uh or what have you so i guess actually speaking of phone calls i saw on uh twitter or somewhere um into i know you had mentioned social media so if you everybody if you're not already follow bob on uh on twitter and linkedin if are you you're on any other channels or maybe just if you want to share where you are on instagram also okay nice i need to need to get on that but then at at bob knackle or how do we uh, follow um you know i'm embarrassed to say i don't remember what the uh what the handles are but that's all right uh, you know i've just been i i was not a big believer in social media um people were after me for years hey bob you gotta you gotta get on there it's great and you have interesting stories to tell uh i broke down and and joined um in in uh, earnest uh january 1st and i've just been blown away by uh, the reach that social media has i've met a lot of great people had a lot of great experiences and uh working on some deals now because of it and uh just been really blown away by uh the reach uh the the quality of the people that are are on and uh it's really it's been a great experience so far so uh, if you email me at bob.nackle, K-N-A-K-A-L, at jll.com, I can send you uh, how you can find me on these various platforms. Yeah, or we'll put this in the show description. We'll 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 find those. And then also, too, if you just type in Bob Nackle on these, he'll come up. Because even though he started in uh, in January, he has, you know, um, you know 10,000 plus followers on at least Twitter and, uh, and LinkedIn. So he's... Uh, uh, got a lot of good information to share and it's you know yeah it's one thing that some of these people on social media where they have a big following but they um they don't have as much experience so then some of their content is not as like uh as rich as yours so i mean yeah i've really enjoyed a lot of the things that i've uh, uh i've saw you put out uh one of those two and we were talking about that before we pressed record was a, a twitter post you had on july 6th that was i thought really inspiring just reading about you building Massey Knackle um, and where you were, you know, for the first 10 years, it uh, it was, a, let's say, maybe a tougher slog than than probably someone would think. So maybe you want to talk about that? Yeah, no, it, look, it was it was tough at the beginning. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I, I believe fate has a lot to do with it. I think luck is important. And I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. But Paul and I actually wanted to start the firm in 1986. Uh, had we done that, we probably would not have gotten through the SNL crisis. Uh, but because we started in late 88, um, our burn rate was sufficiently low that we ran the business on credit cards for a while. Um, we then had to get a, a loan on top of the credit cards. We fortunately had very good credit. But, you know, I got to the point where uh, I had about $180,000 of credit card lines and uh, lived my life off those lines for about 10 years. Uh, and, you know, I'd be zero, minus 40, minus 80, minus 150, and then close a deal, and I'd be back to minus 110, and, you know, close a few more deals, get back to zero, and I felt great being at zero. Uh, but uh, it was a, a tough, tough slog, but we believed in what we were doing. Um, you know, we knew that especially during the SNL crisis, it was tough times in the market. But, uh, you know, fortunately, we were able to, to make it through that time. Uh, and then things worked out fairly well for us. Yeah. And so then, so for 19, you know, 88 to 2014. So what sort of like, I guess, tactics were you guys using to grow the business? Because uh, one thing too, I mentioned, you had mentioned going to the uh, to the library when you had interviewed for a Coldwell Banker. And it's, I mean, I think it's funny people getting started in real estate, how uh, easy some of this, you know, can, how connected everybody is now and how quick you can get information. But even I started in 2005, I bought my first deal. So I was learning about it in 2003 and four, and I was going to the library. I mean, Amazon was around, but I was just starting. So it was like, why spend money? And even so it's, I'm not, you know, it's, it's interesting. I haven't heard a lot of library talk, but let's, um, uh, yeah. why don't, what were you doing to grow the business? 
Yeah, well, there are a few few inflection points uh, over the history of the firm. You know, when we started out in 1988, the uh, the quality and uh, amount of publicly available information was not good. Uh, wasn't a lot of it. What was available wasn't very accurate. So we uh, implemented a geographic specialization to the business. We had one broker working in each neighborhood in Manhattan. Paul and I started in two areas right next to each other, put somebody north of us, somebody south, and grew like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and then when we had all the territories in Manhattan um, occupied, we had to make a decision. What do we do now? Do we get into office leasing? Do we get into retail leasing? Do we do debt? Um, or do we go sell buildings in the outer boroughs? And we decided to open up an office in Queens. We said, you know what? We don't know anything about those other disciplines. We know how to sell buildings. Let's open in Queens. And we did that uh, in 1999. Uh, and uh, it was at a time where it wasn't really in vogue to, uh, to go to the outer boroughs. Most Manhattan brokers thought their shoes would get too dirty if they ventured across the river. So we, um, you know, we opened up in Queens and then we opened up in Brooklyn um, and uh, had a, a, another inflection point occurred for the firm after 9-11. Um, up till that point, Paul and I had been interviewing everybody ourselves. Uh, we saw companies were downsizing. We had a recession going on. We had the terrorist attack uh, at 9-11. Um, and a lot of companies were downsizing, great quality people were being let go. Um, we did something that was counterintuitive. We went out, hired a director of HR, said, go hire all these people. Uh, we had 21 people uh, at 9-11. Uh, within two years, we were at 150. Um, wow. And um, it just, the, the market took off, really rallied very well. The timing was perfect there. Uh, and then we had another inflection point <clears throat> when we got to the point where uh, all of our sale territories in New York City were filled. Um, and then we started looking at other markets. We looked at Boston and Philly and Chicago. Um, and um, what we concluded was that if we went to Chicago, which would have been our next office, um, we'd have to explain to people who we are in addition to what we could do for them. And we said, we have so many relationships that are very, very good with people in New York. Let's offer them more services. And, you know, we had formed an advisory board at the company. Uh, John Fowler, who was one of the Fs in HFF, uh, uh, was on our advisory board. Uh, he suggested we get into the debt business. So in, in 2012, um, we started a mortgage brokerage business. Uh, we also got into retail leasing. Um, and so uh, we handle the, these inflection points differently based on um, the growth of the firm. But there were certain points you could look back on point two and say, hey, you know what, that was a big, um, big change uh, in, in how we did things and why we did things the way we did. Uh, and fortunately, um, a lot of those moves we made were, uh, were very positive. Yeah, that's interesting, kind of just sort of uh, really counterintuitive or it's the opposite of what most all the other companies were doing where you're growing when things are pulling back. And then what was the, at the time, what was the thought with that? Just because uh, in, in retrospect, genius move, but at the time it's what were you guys thinking? Just good talents available or what's yeah, Drew, it, it could have sank us. It really could have sank us because although the, these folks were mostly on commission, um, you do have to increase overhead to support all those commission folks. You do need more office space. You need more paper. You need more, uh, you know, you're sending out more mail. You're, 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 it, there are costs associated um, with even commission salespeople. Um, so the thought was we just felt like New York was very, very strong, uh, that we were going to come back, that it wasn't going to get us down. You know, we had a couple of clients who sold buildings and, and moved out of New York because they were afraid the whole place was going to be bombed. Um, we were then and still are very big believers in New York. Um, and uh, we just had a lot of confidence that the city was uh, a great city and was going to rebound. Uh, and it did. It rebound really quickly and um, really remarkable what happened between 2002 and 2007 in New York. And then I've heard you talk about, or maybe I read it on Twitter, but where 
some of the uh, mid market materials you guys would send out. And so maybe uh, I'd be curious to hear about that, what you guys were doing, how that made you different, different or helped. Yeah, well, we, we always believed in uh, market presence um, and having people know you. There, there are so many uh, smaller properties in New York, and especially because that was the niche we were playing in. Um, you know, you call as many of those people as you possibly can, but it's more important, and I, I say this all the time, in, in, in private capital investment sales, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So we would put together market reports. Each of our territory agents would write a, uh, a, 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 a newsletter about what was happening in their particular neighborhood. Uh, we put together a company newsletter that we sent out quarterly. Our distribution got to be... Uh, over 200,000 uh, of those quarterly. Um, you know, before email really started to get popular, we were sending out over 3 million pieces of mail a year. Uh, and I still talk to people who say, yeah, I remember getting all your mail back in the day, that green and white mail. Uh, it still left an impression on people because it went out like clockwork. Every month, uh, people were getting a piece of hard mail from us, whether it was a postcard, a market report, comp study, uh, quarterly newsletter, um, we really believed very firmly in, um, in um, what's referred to today as proof stacking. Uh, we didn't know that we were proof stacking back in the day because that, that term hadn't been coined yet. Uh, but we were sending out information about the transactions that we had closed and showing our track record. Um, and it really became like a snowball rolling down a hill. Um, and uh, again, today, folks refer to it as proof stacking, but we were, were doing it before that phrase was uh, was a phrase. Yeah, I actually I haven't heard proof stacking before. So how would you describe that? Um, I, I think it's just demonstrating that you have have the ability to do um, what your uh, what you say you can do. Uh, best way to do that is we put together a one page summary of each of our transactions uh, we call that a CART, C-A-R-T. Uh, C explains the challenge that we were faced with. Uh, a is the action that we took. R, the results that were produced. And then T is a testimonial. We try to get testimonials from every client. And we put together uh, one of those write-ups for each of the transactions we closed. And so when we go in to pitch a new piece of business, and let's say... Uh, the reason that the owners were thinking about selling was because of partnership dispute. Uh, we'd pull out the 15 or 20 deals that we did that involved partnership disputes, and we talked about the dynamics of each of those. And just to have all of this information to show that you, you can uh, do that transaction, you have the capability. You know, a lot of people have that track record, but it's difficult for them to show it. Um, and so we, we believed in having the hard materials to demonstrate capability and qualification. So then if you were, if we were in a meeting and I was, we're, I'm having a, I'm, I have a partnership breakup. I want to sell a property. You would be ready to, you already have all your cart, uh, examples printed out just the one pagers or however well, they're, long they're they were. all in a book. Actually, they're all in a book oh, okay. and we typically would, uh, would, um, put a post it on the, the similar dynamic situations to the one that we were pitching. And that's actually helpful. you thumbing through a book of 200 right. deals, uh, pointing to five or 10. Uh, again, that's the impression is, hey, these guys have done a lot of transactions. Um, and uh, then you have specific cases where uh, you overcame um, challenges that are, are present in the, the transaction that you're, you're going after at that time. So the brokers would come, they'd have the book with them and there'd be, let's say 200 closed deals in there. And each one has this, this cart written up about it. Right. And then we don't, we would also, you know, put together a very detailed opinion of value, uh, showing comparable sales, showing what else we had done in the area. One of the best resources that we put together that, that emanated from our territory approach is we would, we would bring in a map of the neighborhood. And there'd be hundreds of dots all over the map. And we said, these are the buildings we sold in your neighborhood. And in fact, when we started out, it's really what, um, what gave us a lot of momentum at the beginning is that, um, you know, we had sold maybe only three properties. So I'll go back to 1985 or 86. We sold three buildings. We were pitching against 
someone with 10 years of experience. Um, you know, our pitch was, well, look, we, we have only sold three buildings, but one was down the block, one was across the street, and the other was right next door to you. And we know this neighborhood better than anybody, and so we can be a better advocate for you in terms of convincing people why they should pay more for your building. And that really got a lot of traction back in those days. I think geographic specialization in, in a time when publicly available data is lacking uh, was a great approach. I don't think that would work as well today. I think today product specialization is much more important, mainly because of the, uh, the additional time that that creates. Um, and what I mean by that is if you're spending your time working on one particular type of building, then all of the time that you're working is accretive towards getting the next one, uh, as opposed to working on disparate uh, types of buildings. Um, you know, the seller of a, a retail property doesn't want to hear about the apartment building that you sold. Uh, they want to hear about all the retail properties you sold. So that's why I think today product specialization is much more important than geographic is. But they, they should go in tandem. I think it's important to do one type of, of transaction, uh, but within a defined geographic area. Yeah, and the more you do of that, the more you're known for it and just kind of things, and the better you're going to be at it the more comps you'll have just like whatever you're pitching. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to, to hear though that, uh, cause that I was gonna definitely uh, ask you about that where, cause I knew you guys did the, uh, you know, geographical like allocations and kind of specialized in, in a neighborhood or in an area. But then in, today you would do uh, product type. And then is that how you have your, your team at JLL set up now? Well, we still have geographic uh, specialization, but we are, dovetailing into product specialization because we do think that that is um you know a more effective way to uh to implement a brokerage business today interesting yeah it, then too i think uh yeah i've realized that on the principal side where i used to be doing kind of any product type in the city i was in but then it's harder to compete with the you know the guy the people have been doing it for 40 years just let's say just only shopping centers in that area and then you know, my last deal was an apartment one. Now I'm buying a shopping center. It's harder to, to, to your point, it's harder to compete as a buyer. And I could definitely see that as a broker. So, and how would you define market presence? I think that's a term I've heard you well, use market before. Market presence but... is, is being known. I, I think it is, it's a combination of so many different things, Drew. It's, it's making your calls, sending out emails, sending out texts, sending out hard mail, uh, going to networking events, speaking at, at conferences, um, just being out and present in the marketplace so that people get to know you. Um, you know, that's such an important part of, uh, of building uh, trust with people. Certainly, um, you want to always uh, covet your reputation. Uh, make sure you protect that because you work a lifetime to uh, build a reputation. You could lose it in a, in a blink of an eye. So um, you want to make sure that you, um, you are trustworthy, that people know you. Uh, if people know you and like you, they'll talk to you. If they trust you, they'll do business with you. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that uh, market presence is just being, uh, is trying to be top of mind with people. If you think about it, in, in Manhattan, for instance, south of 96th Street, there's 27,649 buildings. Uh, the average turnover of that stock of buildings over the last 39 years has been 2.6% which means on average, when someone buys a building in New York or Manhattan, they own it for 40 years before they sell it. So people don't, aren't always transacting. Uh, so you wanna be when, you wanna be the person they think of when it hits them, hey, we should think about selling the building or we need to sell the building. And you look, you know, death, divorce, taxes, partnership disputes, uh, retirement, uh, a number of strategic reasons why people either have to sell or want to sell. Um, and, but when they, they come to that conclusion, you want the first thing for them to think about is, hey, let me, let me call so-and-so. They've, uh, they've been after me uh, all these years. And uh, you know, that, that's the position you want to be in, is to be top of mind with people who are making decisions about whether to transact or not. <clears throat> And then, Mark, and really the way to develop that or to have that, I mean, the, the tactics, strategies you guys used was, you know, going to industry events, uh, having the monthly uh, mail piece go out. I mean, what else, what else were you encouraging folks to do? 
Well, de developing relationships with people in the press. Uh, it's always better to be, be quoted in an article someone else is writing than to uh, write your own article. So um, we were very proactive about building relationships with people in the real estate media in New York. Um, you know, got to the point where I'm, I've been quoted over 2,000 times a year uh, in various uh, trade publications, and that also adds to market presence. So um, just, you know, being out and, and active uh, in the marketplace is very, very important. And now with social media, um, you know, you get a, a multiplier effect on the different things that you're doing, because if you go to a networking event, um, clearly you're interacting with all the folks there, but then you post something online and, um, you know, you're getting that much more, um, market presence based on, on, uh, social media presence. So a lot, a lot of ways to, uh, to get people to know who you are. And in 2023, then you think you the same sort of playbook you guys use the eighties, nineties, two thousands, you would just do sounds like the same thing except also incorporate social media or um because or is the the are the mail pieces still effective are you guys still doing those or kind of what would you recommend today yeah when email became really effective we we slowed down significantly on the hard mail uh but i'm getting more back into hard mail today because i think it has good shelf life uh and i think that email is losing its effectiveness to some degree i mean we're all getting so many emails all day long uh, there's an inclination to just want to get your box empty. So you're hitting delete, 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 and things may be uh, deleted inadvertently. So I think uh, hard mail is, is effective and, uh, you know, we're continuing to do hard mail today. So the same things plus incorporating social media then? Really, yeah, social media and, and new technology, which uh, clearly <laughs> technology is changing very significantly. So you want to take advantage of... Uh, of the the technologies that you can take advantage of and i'm probably the 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 least savvy uh technology person that's around but i i try hard to uh to figure out how to use certain things and and take advantage of what's available to us today yeah and i think the hard i mean that makes sense with uh, uh my experience is the same as what you're talking about with hard mail and with email at this point where Right, we're getting so many emails, and then depending on when you receive it too, at some of these times where people are sending a lot of emails, like at 10 a.m., you know, everyone schedules their their email to go. It seems like for a new deal, let's say, you know, I get 30 emails at that time slot, and then how hard do I look at each one? You know, not that hard. Whereas if you have a piece of mail, that's like what you're talking about, where it's almost like a, you know, something you might review later when you're sitting down or it's still on your desk or your kitchen table or wherever, you know, it came in. I mean, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I've noticed folks kind of picking that back up now. So as well, but then, um, I guess what else I, one, I had heard you guys talk about exclusive listings as well. So I think, um, kind of, I'm hearing you guys had some unique tactics that you guys were doing to grow the firm and how you had it set up geographically. And then, I know you guys were doing exclusive listings only. Was that unique for, for New York or at the time? Or, or maybe tell me about that. Um, I, I think it was. Um, I mean, we, we had a very, very simple value proposition. And I believe, you know, you should be able to uh, articulate what you do and how you do it very simply. Uh, and so and until 2012, when we started mortgage brokerage and, and retail leasing, uh, we would just tell people, look, we only sell buildings, uh, we only represent sellers, and we only work on exclusives. So that took about six seconds to say, right? And there's no ambiguity in that. It was very clear. And we, we stuck to it. And we, we made sure that all of our folks stuck to it as well. And I would tell sellers, uh, look, if you have a 12-story purple building on the corner and you want to sell it, and you won't give me an exclusive. If I have a 1031 buyer walk into my office tomorrow and say, I want to buy a 12 story purple building on the corner. Do you know of anything? I would say no. Um, and it's just because even if you had that unique scenario where the buyer describes exactly that transaction, um, it eats up a, a significant amount of time 
Uh, doing buyer brokerage, buyer representation, I think is a very low probability business. Some people do it very, very effectively, um, but I think it's hard to do things consistently um, uh, that way. Um, but uh, we, we, we were very, very um, rigid about the way that we implemented that business plan. Um, and I think that was something that served us well. Yeah, that's that's really surprising to hear because I, I think, you know, really uh, in, in terms of maybe not that you guys took on exclusive listings, but just whereas there was that, let's say, high probability of a off-market deal coming together that you would still still turn it down. And that the thought on that, again, was just, yeah, that's like a higher probability than your average one, but it's a, still a way higher probability, better use of my time to go try to get an actual exclusive sale listing because then that's got a, a, a way higher probability of selling. It's just, that's as simple as that. Yeah. If you were going to spend 20 hours working on that, uh, open listing or whatever. And by the time, you know, you send the information out, you have show the building, you go for another tour, you're negotiating it, it, the hours add up. I rather spend that time trying to get another exclusive and people knew in the marketplace, if they wanted someone at our firm to work on their property, um, and they would want us to work on their property because we had, you know, we had Miller Cicero, an appraisal firm, do a study uh, showing that our sales on average were 31% higher in price uh, than the rest of the market. So we, they, uh, Miller Cicero called it the Massey-Nackle premium, uh, and they only did that for a couple of years, and then the rest of the brokerage community got a little upset and wouldn't cooperate with them giving them market information uh, because they felt like they were endorsing us. But the fact is, you know, if you wanted a Massey-Nackle broker to sell your building, you had to give us an exclusive or, or as uh, Kevin O'Leary would say, you were dead to us. <laughs> yeah, it, that's that's so that's such a interesting move to make, because I guess it makes sense just from a let's say your time usage. But then you know, you're, you're sort of saying, okay, I have a pretty decent bird in the hand, but I'm going to pass on that for going for an even better one. Let's say if that makes sense. So that's interesting. And then two, like, what if, let's say I'm your, I'm a client of yours, Bob, and I, you're my favorite broker, of course, you know, and then, so what do we, um, I'm doing a 1031. I need to find this to, you know, a property that fits this criteria. Can you help me? You, you say no to your, to your client on that. No, we, we, we would offer any buyer all of our exclusive listings. And if none of our exclusive listings met their requirement, we would introduce them to other brokers that might have something that they would be interested in. They're, I mean, the reality was most, uh, the, say more than half of the 1031 exchange um, exchanges that were done by clients we sold property for, they were buying properties outside New York. Um, so we would okay. introduce to brokers who did stuff around town. We only worked in New York City, so uh, we knew brokers at other brokerage companies that they could talk to and, and routinely made those introductions. And, um, you know, it, it actually helped that, that particular client who came to us and said, hey, I want you to help me on the 1031, when we would only offer them the properties that we were exclusively representing, I think in some ways it was comforting to them because they knew if they were hiring us to exclusively sell their building, we're not going to be running around doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We were going to be working hard on their build, trying to sell their building. Um, and so they knew how committed we were to the process of helping the people who, who were committed to us. Did any of your competitors eventually start doing this the same way? Because this this sounds easy, folks, but I mean, as a broker, it's got to be really hard to be passing on like these kind of this, this, especially this example I'm giving where it's a, an, a buyer that you could rep that has money. They literally need to buy a property to defer their taxes and then you're passing on that. So I wonder, did competitors uh, start copying that or how did that what did they do? Yeah, I think there were other firms that that tried to implement that and uh, and did. And I mean, today. Uh, there are 14 companies or investment sales divisions that are run by uh, folks who learn the business at Massey-Nackle. So today we're, uh, we're competing with a lot of folks that are implementing the same exact kind of approach. Uh, but that, uh, that's what makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah, I had one of those guys on my uh, podcast. This, uh, James Nelson, his episode comes out this week. And 
Um, I think he said that he was one of the first hires, but is there two people applied and he wasn't the first choice? <laughs> so. That's right. And the, the guy that we hired uh, actually um, flamed out in less than a year. And, you know, James went on to do the great things that uh, that he's he's accomplished and very, very proud of him. Um, you know, I, I consider him like a little brother in the business. And, uh, you know, he's great. Yeah, no, that was a great, uh, great conversation I had with him. But yeah, I thought that, that was an interesting, you know, every, a lot of people have like an interesting start to their, their career. And, you know, James, no exception being uh, the, the second choice, but somehow still got his foot in the door and, you know, uh, so, you know, crushed it since. So, but yeah, let's talk about cold calling then like you, um, you know, how let's say a lot of, um, you know, I'm starting to see more people just like they have a deal for sale or they want to get in touch with me, they just send an email or a text, you know, I think, um, some, I'm starting to see like less cold calling, at least on my side, I guess. What do you, what do you think about cold calling, uh, for brokers? I think you, uh, you have to be cold calling. It's still my, my number one goal up until the pandemic was to connect with 50 property owners a week and get around to asking them if there's anything they wanted to sell. Uh, since the pandemic, that's actually increased to 100 a week. Uh, I didn't realize that was possible, but uh, I, uh, I, I started in 2020. My connection rate got, got up to over 100 a week, and uh, it stayed there since. Uh, but that, I think, is the uh, you know, prospecting on the phone is the gasoline that, that drives the car. Um, if you're if most people don't prospect, which is shocking to me, and many of them do very well, but I think they could do, you know, two X or three X what they're doing if they implemented a prospecting plan. And to, when you say a hundred contacts is this is a hundred calls. And if it goes to voicemail that counts, or this is your literally no, talking a hundred connections, uh, actually speaking to a property owner online. That's whether you dial the phone a hundred times or 500 times doesn't matter. It's how many people you speak to. Okay. Yeah. I just want to clarify that. Cause I see, um, you know, I've, I saw people, people where they the metric they're tracking is the, is just, uh, calls per week, you know? And so, uh, and if you're doing that, they were putting up a bigger number than you were saying, Bob. So I wanted to clarify that cause, um, I doubt they were getting through if they made 400 calls to a hundred, the hundred of them they talked to. So then that's, um, yeah, Drew. I mean, the reality is I rather somebody speak to, uh, to 20 people a week, uh, dialing the phone 22 times than dialing a thousand times and speaking to two people. Uh, number of dials is not, not relevant. That's, uh, you have good skills. You can dial a phone, but, and what, what really matters is, is the conversation that you have with someone. And then is that the best way to get to, to know someone you'd say over the phone or what would you? No, the best, best way to get to know somebody is good old fashioned face-to-face contact. But you know, that, that takes time. you the frequency. You can't meet with a hundred people a week. It's just impossible that you physically can't do it. Um, but um, so you do the cold calling. The objective is to, um, convey your value proposition, get the person to know you, try to set up a face-to-face meeting. Uh, meeting with someone face-to-face is the best way to, to further a relationship. And that's, that's what you want to do. You know, Bob, I'm starting to realize that I've learned quite a bit uh, from you on, uh, on Twitter. Because another thing I was thinking about when we were talking is that I have saw uh, somewhere you had put out that the, the prospect that hangs up on you while you're cold calling might be the most valuable uh, potential client. We want to, uh, elaborate on that. Tell us why that, that would be. Sure. Sure. you know, people would, uh, would get excited when they would call somebody for the first time and have a 20 minute conversation. And I would say, well, it's, it's nice that you had that. Hopefully you made a good impression, but if you never spoke to that person before, they don't know who they are and they're talking to you for 20 minutes, they're talking to everybody that's calling them for 20 minutes. So, uh, I always thought the best potential prospect was somebody who you couldn't get on the phone, somebody who hung up on you all the time or just would never take the call. Because if you could ultimately break through and develop a relationship with that person, they're hanging up on everybody else. 
So I viewed it as a, a big win uh, if you were able to, uh, to land one of those folks who you had a really tough time uh, getting on the phone. Yeah. And then so some of these uh, like industry titans that I'm sure you've worked with, you know, the, the Stephen Rosses of the world, uh, um, I'm blanking on the name, Gary Barnett, like these guys. Um, is that how it worked with them? I mean, I assume you've, you've spoken to these guys over the years if you're selling land. Yeah, or... they're all they're all friends now, um, you know, but I, the, the example I use when I talk about this particular thing is Harry Macklow, um, big developer in New York. Uh, big investor. And I called Harry for two and a half years, uh, just about every month for two and a half years. He'd never take my call. And I called his office one night about seven o'clock. His, uh, his assistant had gone for the day. He picked up directly. Um, he knew exactly who I was, but I had never spoken to him before. And he said, you know, I know you've been, been trying me for a long time. What, what, what are you up to these days, kid? And, uh, you know, it was the start of a, a great relationship I've done you know, almost $400 million worth of transactions with him over the years. And, uh, you know, he's a, a good personal friend and, and a client. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's, let's leave it there. I mean, this was a lot of fun, Bob. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think if people want to, uh, get in touch with you, you know, if they want to see what you're doing, we'll put all the social media stuff in the, in the show notes, so people can go there. But if anyone wants to get a hold of you, I mean, what should they do? Yeah, always be, feel free to uh, email me, bob.nackle at jll.com. Nackle's K-N-A-K-A-L. So bob.nackle at jll.com. And i uh, love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks, Bob. And then uh, also, too, uh, and I, um, if you've been watching this episode, like there, Bob's in this list, like coolest room ever with these hockey jerseys. I mean, that... Um, so maybe is that's that's something you you collect obviously then. So this is a real background. Yeah, it's one too. of my weird hobby I have. I've been doing it for about twenty five years, but I uh, I collect Marc Messier game used memorabilia, jerseys, sticks, skates, gloves, things like that. And uh, this I'm on top of my garage uh, in Connecticut, and uh, this is where I I work a lot of the time when I'm up here. Nice. Yeah, it's a, a hell of a room. So great. Well, thanks, Bob. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.